I'm Michael Olver, and this is the PSA Better Intelligence Podcast. Today, we interview Andrew Jacobson from the law firm Seward & Kissel. He's a sanctions expert and has been a guest on the pod once before. In today's show, we talk about Russian sanctions as they develop very quickly. We're now recording this on the 10th of March, which you'll hear me say because things have progressed so rapidly. And we stray into Iran and Venezuela sanctions. Uh, and all in, it's an interesting and fascinating show. Andrew, are you able to do a quick introduction to yourself and your firm? Sure, Michael. It's a delight to be here. And uh, my name is Andrew Jacobson. I'm an attorney at Seward and Kissel in New York, where I specialize in sanctions, anti-money laundering, and other financial crimes issues. Yeah, I'm former uh, enforcement attorney uh, at New York's top financial regulator, the Department of Financial Services. And I guess I should just note, do this with everything I'm doing these days, is that these opinions are my own, uh, do not reflect or represent the views of my employer, and I'm not providing legal advice. Excellent. Thank you very much for doing the disclaimer. It's amazing. Every single one of our guests has done that their own way. Uh, we're here to talk about, obviously, the emerging sanctions situation on Ukraine. It's a fast-moving series of events. We're recording this on the 10th of March, and things may have changed between now and the time that uh, this gets published. So as always, anything we say, please, please do get professional advice. Obviously, don't base any decisions on, on anything we say here because things may have changed. So right, just to bring everybody up to speed so that we can all start from a, the same position of knowledge. Essentially, this all goes back to 2013, the what the U Ukrainians call the Revolution of Dignity or the Medan Re Revolution where Ukrainians took the streets in large masses and ousted Viktor Yanukovych after a year of street battles and some really terse fighting. When he was ousted, he, he went across to Russia. He refused to recognize the new government in Ukraine. Russia then sided uh, with Yanukovych and uses an opportunity came in and annexed Crimea and then began to support. And it's very hard to weave a middle ground, and I apologize on this, but began supporting uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. You, you'll hear them called breakaway region uh, a lot in the news. From 2014 onwards, you, you essentially have a low-grade conflict, which they probably wouldn't call low-grade if you were around it, but it's essentially the, the Donbass War. The Donbass War continues, and in the background, there are sanctions from the EU, the US, um, and several other active members, the, the UK, when they go out on their own and leave the EU and, and start their own sanctions regime. So in terms of this, what you see at the very beginning in 2014 is that the EU takes the lead and sanctions 132 people and 28 entities. However, the, the focus is really largely on these separatist regions and activity within the economic and social activity within the, these economic and political activity within these eastern regions. Over the course of 2014 to largely until end of 2021, there's a steady ramping up and a steady expansion. And it really expands in the numbers of people that are sanctioned by the EU and the US. It's still largely focused on the Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk areas. It, it expands once they start investigating the assets that were stolen by the Yanukovych regime. International parties begin sanctioning individuals trying to freeze and then recover assets that they were, were stolen from Ukraine, and then expands again in terms of the prohibition on investment and goods and technologies into those regions. So really, this is sort of centralized and contained. As this progresses into 2021, there are very few additions. We start off with 149 persons and 37 entities in 2015. By the end of 2021, there are only 185 persons and 48 entities. 
and again restricted within this environment. Everything changes in early 2022 when the level of tension ratches up. It becomes very clear from troops massing on the border uh, between Belarus and, and Ukraine and that Russia is is announcing an intent to take military action. And then on the 21st of February, 2022, uh, Russia officially recognizes the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. So these are the two contested areas that are, are not the Crimea. What happens is a barrage of US, EU, UK, Canadian sanctions and activity that you've been seeing in the news over the last two weeks. Just to try to run through this as quickly as possible, there is on the 21st of February, there are US sanctions, which apply severe restrictions on trade with Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Again, sticking within that theme of trying to contain the, the sanctions. In February 22nd, the day after, the US sanctions, Russian banks, VEB, Russian military bank PSB prohibits U.S. from being a secondary market for Russian bonds after March 1st and restricts their ability to, Russian ability to, to raise money in the West. The On the 22nd of February, Germany refuses to certify, so basically cannot open, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would double the amount of natural gas imported into Germany from Russia. The UK then sanctions five banks and three Russian billionaires. On the 23rd of February, the EU sanctions... 351 members of the Russian Duma. There are economic sanctions against the DPR and LPR and restriction of Russian access to EU capital and financial markets. So again, this is by the day almost, this is expanding. On the 24th of February, Russia launches a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. On the 24th of February, the US blocks technology exports to Russian military and aerospace and targeted sanctions against what they assess to be 80% of Russian banks. On the 25th of February, sanctions are sanctions are created against, against Vladimir Putin himself and Sergei Lavrov, and uh, EU Regulation 328 of 2022 is issued on the 25th of February, limiting services and parts for aircraft and terminating aircraft leases if they are to Russian entities. This results in a quite recent exodus of Russian aircraft to Russia. There are now sanctions on Russia, the financial sector, energy sector, transport, dual-use goods, export control, export financing, visas, uh, sanction against Russian individuals, and new listing criteria for Russian companies. By February 28th, this is only in the space of a few days, there's now the EU bans transactions with the Russian Central Bank, puts a $500 million support package for financing equipment, bans overflight of EU airspace, which is copied by Canadians, Americans, the UK, several others. And on the 25th of February, the US, the UK, Canada, European Commission essentially lock Russia out, Russian banks out of SWIFT, um, which is the international transaction system, and restricts Russian banks access to offshore reserves of, of $642 billion. The EU also restricts SWIFT access for five Russian banks, also restricts the selling, supplying, transferring, or exporting euro banknotes to Russia. EU sanctions also occur against Russia today and Sputnik, which is very odd for the EU to sanction media outlets. On the 9th of March, they, the EU expands uh, further, targeting Russian and Belarusian banks through SWIFT, and then sanctions 14 oligarchs and 146 members of the Russian Federal Council. At the time of this podcast, again on the 10th of March, the EU restrictive measures now apply to a total of 862 individuals and 53 entities, which is a dramatic change from the 149 persons and 37 entities of 2015, or the not very much more um, by the end of 2021.
So this is fast moving. Um, it's being taken very seriously and it's very broad and far reaching with multiple layers of sanctions from multiple different vectors, um, national and uh, industry vertical. Now that we all have a position to start from, I wanted to pivot back to this and get into the weeds a little bit more. Uh, my first question is with that, I was managed to focus a lot on EU sanctions coming out. I know there's US sanctions, but who is participating in this sort of sanctions against Russia relating to this? Sure. I think the key for understanding who has been you know, participating in these sanctions is it's truly been a multilateral effort amongst you know, many Western allies. So you have, you mentioned the EU, you have the UK, which since their departure from the EU via Brexit has their own you know, comprehensive sanctions program. You have the US and from the US perspective, it would be the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, also referred to as OFAC. You have the US State Department, which implements certain sanctions, and you have the US Commerce Department, which has authority over export controls. Canada has participated in the sanctions. Australia and other Western countries have, have been a part of this. So this truly is you know, a multilateral approach. It's really a very different approach than was taken under the prior U.S. presidential administration, who was much keener on going it alone. And I think you know, the focus now is ensuring that there are not other countries that can help you know, Russia evade or get out of these sanctions and obviously the focus on China. But getting back to your point, Michael, it is Western allies that have joined together for the most part in implementing these sanctions. One of the things that I noticed when looking into this in prep of the, the pod was there seems to be a lot of leadership coming directly from the EU, which I feel like is slightly different than sanctions actions that I've seen before. Is that correct? Or is that just a, a misconception or misperception on my part? No, it's absolutely correct. In the past, EU sanctions have been around for some time now. EU has its own blocking statute, which essentially prohibits those in the EU from complying with certain extraterritorial sanctions. But I guess you're absolutely right. The EU sanctions program, I think, is more united now than it really ever has been. Mm. You know, the member states have been in, you know, pretty strongly aligned in imposing these, these new restrictions. And so, you know, I think it's an interesting point that this conflict really has united the EU both militarily and in terms of economic warfare. Yep. In terms of the types of sanctions, so just in that blurb, and again, it was really a snatch and grab because there's so much that's going on. It seems to be that there are, are sanctions against transactions. There are sanctions against specific technologies. Can you just run us through some of the levers that are being pulled on this? And if you need to stick to the most important ones, because I think it, it's almost too sprawling. The questions that I'm getting from people are, I hear there are sanctions doing reading quickly, but I don't know if they apply to me. Sure. At a high level, I can talk really focusing on the U.S. sanctions. At a very high level, there have been you know several different measures that have been taken. The first, as you mentioned, Luhansk and Donetsk regions of, of Ukraine. The U.S. has now expanded the trade embargo to those regions. So they expanded the Crimea trade embargo that was imposed in 2014. And so now U.S. companies can't do any business in those regions subject to certain limited exceptions. The U.S. has also imposed various restrictions on the public securities markets, you know, in particular restrictions on certain company issuances of new debt or equity that occur after March 26th. There are uh, restrictions on current trading of certain Russian banks that have been added to OFAC sanctions list. There are also restrictions on, as you mentioned, sovereign debt issuances, and there's a full transaction ban on doing any business with the Central Bank of Russia. 
again, subject to certain limited exceptions. In addition to that, the U.S. and other allies have imposed pretty broad oligarch sanctions. And as you noted, sanctions against Putin, which is pretty unprecedented to go after a head of state, although it's not without some historical uh, significance, uh, as well as sanctions on recently imports of Russian oil and other energy products into the U.S. and, and prohibitions on new investments in the Russian energy sector. So basically, taking a step back, the U.S. has gone after Russia's capital markets, has gone after Russia's banking industry, has gone after now the Russian energy sector. So they've done a lot. I think there's still some meat on the bone that the U.S. could go after in the future, but uh, that's kind of just a gist of what's happened. Yeah, I was going to circle back to that in terms of what could be done potentially beyond this, because I think it's kind of reached the limits of my imagination, but um, hopefully I'm, I'm not the limiting factor on this. But in terms of with those sanction verticals, I guess, who should be concerned about this? If you're a business, what kind of parameters would you need to have to, to really be concerned? Do you have to be active in one of these sectors that's the target of sanctions? Do you have to be getting paid by Russian firms? Do you have to be paying Russian firms? What are key triggers? within this or in the obvious? All of the above. I would say that for U.S. purposes, you know, assessing your exposure to Russia, assessing business exposure, counterparty exposure, to the extent Russian businesses or, or clients of yours, and getting a sense of first, what's the status of the entity or person you're doing business with? And then secondly, what is your status as it relates to U.S. sanctions jurisdiction? So U.S. sanctions apply to U.S. persons, generally speaking. So typically that are, those are U.S. companies, U.S. citizens, permanent resident aliens, so green card holders, and anybody, quote, within the U.S. And so to the extent that you're a U.S. company, you got to comply with U.S. sanctions. But if you're not a U.S. company, meaning you're located or organized elsewhere in the world, you could still come within U.S. jurisdiction to the extent that you're dealing in U.S. dollars, to the extent that you're engaging in transactions that go through the U.S., including its financial system. So you have trading relationships here, if you have banking relationships, if you have a branch here, et cetera. And then finally, you know, the U.S. has the ability to impose what's called secondary sanctions. Those are largely designation-based, and there are other you know, menu-based items that can be imposed. But to the extent that you are materially assisting a sanctioned actor, to the extent you're providing you know, financial, technical, or other types of support to a sanctioned actor, you face the risk of being put on OFAC sanctions list. And that imposes asset freezing requirements, et cetera. So the U.S. has tools to not just prohibit its own domestic companies from doing business with a sanctioned person, but also has a very strong track record of going after non-U.S. actors to advance U.S. foreign policy interests. If I can break it down a little bit more, there seem to be three large risks that you're trading in a good or service that is restricted or prohibited by one of these sanctions, that you're engaging with an individual who is named as a sanctioned counterparty or one of their business interests. And so you, you interact with secondary sanctions. Am I missing uh, other risk categories for individuals as, as they look to assess this? I think those three categories are right. And I, what I would add to those are two things, I would say. One, are you dealing in any property or interest in property that a sanctioned actor has you know, some claim to? Because you know, this concept of OFAC's 50% rule. And so the 50% rule means that if you have a sanctioned person and they own 50% or more of another company, then that other company is essentially treated the same for sanctions purposes as its principal owner. And oftentimes... In sanctions law and with you know sanctioned actors, 
they hide behind you know investment vehicles and oftentimes very hard to get who the ultimate beneficial owner is and so you might unwittingly do business with a company that's owned by a sanctioned person and i think the challenge with ofac requirements is that it's strict liability so you don't need to prove intent or knowledge to demonstrate a civil violation that is one what i would add you know, I think I would add to that or as well are securities issuances. So to the extent that, you know, you're trading in securities, whether it's debt or equity on the secondary markets and the issuer is a sanctioned entity. And depending on what sanctions apply, you may be restricted from dealing in their securities. If you have U.S. investors, even if you're not a U.S. you know, hedge fund or bank, et cetera. You, know, you could be at risk of causing your U.S. investors to violate sanctions. So I think that's kind of the other category that we, that we look out for. But certainly the three you mentioned are really key to implement into a compliance program. So just before we are recording this, I saw a post from Bradley Hopes. I don't know if you're familiar with whale hunting. It's one of his projects. He's former Wall Street Journal, now Project Brazen. But it was on the fire sale of assets taking place in Europe of super yachts, assets and holdings, things related to, I think now Roman Abramovich is, is sanctioned. Obviously, Chelsea, there was, there was some discussion on sale of Chelsea beforehand. All of these assets are now up for sale. If you're able to structure this in a way that basically doesn't expose you to sanctions violations, but it seems like that risk is very real, especially if it's a, a U.S. person that's behind or, or if there's a U.S. nexus to any of it, which is interesting. In terms of the overall differences, I think we, we already talked about how you know, the EU driving on this is a little bit different than before. Is there anything else different specifically about these sanctions than previous rounds of sanctions relating to Russia um, that would have been encountered. Can you help us identify a few of those themes and, and pull them out? It's a great question. And I think the better issue is how is this sanctions implementation different than anyone that's ever existed in the history of the world, mm. you know, modern world? I think that this is the most significant implementation of sanctions that's ever occurred. Russia is the world's 11th, I think 11th largest economy, or, or it's at least a G20 economy. It was intertwined with global commerce for a long time post-breakdown of the Soviet Union. If you look at the track record of other countries that the U.S. and its allies have imposed sanctions against, those countries and regimes were already isolated before the sanctions went into effect. Russia was not as isolated as on paper it might appear, because there were Russia sanctions that started in 2014 with the invasion of Crimea. But those sanctions were very limited. They were really, really limited to the capital markets and certain sanctions on you know, exploration for Arctic offshore oil. And mm -hmm. even the energy sanctions previously had exceptions for transportation, financial services, etc. You know, The U.S. has sanctioned numerous Russian state-owned banks, full blocking sanctions. So, I mean, those banks, foreign you know, reserves located in the U.S. are blocked or frozen. So that, that really impacts their ability to access you know, foreign currency liquidity ability to access U.S. customers, et cetera. So that's a really substantial penalty. And the fact that the U.S. has targeted the Russian central bank with a full transaction ban, a central bank of that degree, really is significant. People always ask me, where is Russia going next? What's the best analogy for Russia? And I think the best analogy is what happened with Venezuela. That's the closest I really can think of, where the U.S. had had targeted sanctions on Venezuela for a decade. And then all of a sudden, elections happen, there's repression, other types of issues, and the U.S. 
sanctions the Venezuelan government, meaning full blocking sanctions on the Venezuelan government, full blocking sanctions on its state-owned petroleum operator, PDVSA, and other state-owned entities. So there's no full trade embargo with Venezuela, but the government is sanctioned in a country like that, a socialist country that's essentially a trade embargo. I think you look at Venezuela, what happened there, and how their currency tanked, and how the country you know, really struggled to gain any liquidity I think that's probably the model that could be for Russia in the future. But you know, Venezuela was not as intertwined in the global economy as Russia was. The U.S. had a refining relationship, the Sicko relationship, but that's kind of about it. And so I think to take a step back, what's different about these sanctions? I think the difference is the, the scale of the implementation and really the unknown about how this all could play out and how it could impact the Western economy. Yeah. As you were talking about Venezuela, I thought, yep, that's good. But Venezuela is not a nuclear power. Yeah. Yeah. There are potential repercussions here that are quite live and active in a way that it sanctions, the conversation around sanctions maybe normally aren't. I mean, North Korea, it's smuggling or, you know, a belligerent nation or, you know, it's not the potential to accidentally declare war by putting too much pressure on or do something that would be perceived as an act of war. In touching on Venezuela, I mean, since since you brought it up, there are also uh, recent days there have been some announcements of people working directly with Iran for closing a nuclear deal and trying to, to really hurry this up. People talking about the relaxation of Venezuelan sanctions. It's been noticed by pretty much everyone that both of those are major oil producers, as, as is Russia. And with the Russia being cut off from U.S. supply over the last couple of days, I'll say. Is that something that you expect to see happening? A relaxation or a, a coming to terms with with Iran and Venezuela, relaxation of sanctions? That's a really good question. I don't see the Iran deal as being related to Russia, but I have seen reports that Iran's ability to fill the void of Russian oil is maybe not as much as people say. You know, in terms of U.S. domestic consumption of Russian oil, you know, the figure I saw was about 3% of unrefined crude that the U.S. imports from Russia. I mean, the U.S. relationship with Venezuela was much more significant back in the day as mm-hmm. because the Sicko refinery is you know, one of the biggest refineries in the U.S. And so, you know, in terms of making up U.S. oil supply, if, if Russia's kicked out, which they are kicked out now, I mean, there are questions, are there other viable alternatives? I mean, the U.S. still has a foreign policy interest in choking the Iranian regime and the Venezuelan regime from revenue. That's the goal. The regimes have not changed since the sanctions have been implemented, and they're not going to change going forward. Mm. But, you know, I mean, people can disagree on this issue. I just don't see a viable alternative being Venezuela or Iran. I mean, if you look at Venezuela's domestic oil market and their ability to pump their, their infrastructure, I mean, it's completely deteriorated over the past few years. I mean, there is constant theft. There's complete destruction. They've lost a lot of talent. U.S. companies have largely pulled out of their infrastructure investments that they've made, even though there have been general licenses that allowed major U.S. You know, Halliburton and other infrastructure companies to exist. So I mean, the idea that Venezuela can just increase their output significantly within a week or two, it's just no. not viable. I mean, I think the U.S. probably is thinking of ways to ease those sanctions. I don't know if it's just because of the Russian issue. Or perhaps if it's because Venezuela and Iran have signaled some willingness to change their behavior. I don't know. Uh, But it's a really good question. 
I could be wrong, but I think the Iranian serious negotiations were six to eight months old. Yeah. And so this could be just a semi-convenient end story time, but it's certainly getting a lot of play in terms of the fact that both are oil producers. And obviously to your point, I mean, I, I remember talking to somebody from Orenco who says we invest tens of million dollars a year so that if we need to ramp up production, we can. That capacity to do that physically exists. So it's an excellent point in terms of Venezuela not being able to just turn a switch, especially in a current state the infrastructure is in. All right. And one thing, Michael, to your point, if the U.S. and Western allies enter into a new nuclear deal with Iran, you know, the U.S. trade embargo with Iran will not go away. What really is on the table are secondary sanctions, meaning sanctions against non-U.S. actors that the U.S. would pull back, just what they did with prior JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So if there's an Iran nuclear deal, the U.S. will not be importing Iranian oil. I, I can tell you that. Um, I can't say the same with regards to Venezuela because I think that is a historic trading relationship. But I just want to make that clear that, you know, to your point, the Iran nuclear deal, I think, is really more about preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon than it is about shoring up the U.S. domestic consumption of oil. So in terms of the impact on actual sanctions with Iran, you're saying it's only secondary sanctions would likely be revoked. Exactly. I can't even remember what the status of the money that's been sort of frozen offshore for Iran, whether that's been repatriated and whether that's still being held in escrow. Would that allow for international trade with Iran, non-US trade with Iran? Exactly. Sorry for taking us off topic, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I had this conversation yesterday with a banker in the UAE who was hoping that this would be a sort of break, that this would come become available again in the future because it's a, a traditional 3,000 year trading relationship. There was some speculation on whether the current sanctions on Iran would be rolled back, um, would also free up banking transactions. Do you have any comments on that one? Do you think that's going to happen as well? I think foreign financial institutions will be permitted to deal with you know certain Iranian ones. I think that's certainly definitely on the table. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably the main goal of the Iranian regime is to get access again to foreign liquidity. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, back to Ukraine. In terms of risk assessments, I feel like we've talked about that quite a bit. So if you're chief compliance officer, chief legal officer within a company that's engaging with, with Russia, you're, you mentioned previously, you're looking for a US nexus. You're also, or indeed US, EU, Canadian, UK, but you also really need to get into the weeds in terms of what you're doing. Do you have any other last minute advice for somebody who's trying to get to grips with what all this means to this fast-moving environment? Yeah, I, I think what you said is absolutely right. So you assess your exposure, assess your status under you know the various sanctions regimes. Really, I think with a focus on the U.S. because U.S. teeth historically have been the strongest when it comes to enforcement. You know, follow developments closely. The sanctions laws as we mentioned in the beginning, are changing every day. It's really fast moving. You know, to the extent that you're engaged in a high volume of transactions, getting a grip on your screening tools and making sure that they're covering, you know, this concept of the 50% rule, so indirect ownership, you know, to the extent that you have, you know, complex ownership structures, digging into beneficial ownership to see if oligarchs are involved. You know, the US and others have allowed for long you know, not long, but, you know, wind down periods. So to the extent that your counterparty is sanctioned, you know, check if there's a wind down period that allows you to get out of the transaction before the sanctions go into effect. And I think lastly, to the extent you've assessed your own jurisdictional status, and let's say you're not subject to US jurisdiction, oftentimes, if you have financing agreements, or insurance agreements, or banking agreements, you will have representations, warranties, and covenants in those agreements that may contractually bind you to comply with US sanctions or EU or UK when 
under a strict letter of the law analysis, you're not actually subject to those laws. And so being mindful of what you've contractually committed to do versus what you're legally required to do, you know, under under jurisdictional analysis, I think that's really key right now because the last thing you want is your lender, is your insurance company, et cetera, to pull coverage, to terminate, claim default when you didn't assess jurisdiction properly. Okay. I think we need to leave it there. So Andrew, how do people get in touch with you if they need your help? Sure. You can reach out to me by email at Jacobson A, J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N-A at Sukis.com, S-E-W-K-I-S.com, or you can go to our website, Seward and Kissel, Google us, Sukis.com and find us. Excellent. Listen, thank you very much. It was fascinating as always. Thanks for being our, our first second guest. And I look forward to hope, hopefully seeing you in the future on the show and, and in person as, as travel now resumes. Thanks again for, for taking the time and talking through all this. Anytime. Thanks for having me.